The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Please be seated. The text is a bit longer this evening. As we look to God's Word together again, uh, turning in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 5, we'll read the entire chapter and then through to chapter 6 and through to verse 13. This is page uh, page 48 for using the Pew Bible. Exodus chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, let's worship the Lord by again giving good attention to this, the public reading of his word. Exodus chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters, of the people and the foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words." So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that, that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them, as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord, look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. 
For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Amen. As far the reading of God's word, let's, let's pray together. Our Father and our gracious God, we do look to you again this evening, and we look to this, your word, the sacred scriptures. Lord, we bless you that you've given us your word to guide us, to help us on our pilgrim way. Please, please bless that word as it comes to us, Father. Bless the preaching. Bless our listening. Grant, O oh Lord, that we would show ourselves once again this evening to be your people, even the sheep, those who hear the voice of Jesus, the good shepherd, who, who hear and who follow him on that path unto eternal life to which you have called us. Hear us, Lord God, for we ask for this in his name. Amen. Well, we've had a a one-week hiatus from our uh, sermon series through the book of Exodus here, and we're returning to the very passage that Matthew Ezel was planning to preach before his wife went into labor. He had a sermon already. We didn't think it would be a good thing to put the pressure on him of putting the series on hold until he could come back and preach that himself. So here we are uh, this evening. You may have noticed that uh, the sermon outline didn't change, the title didn't change, the three points didn't change. Some of you might be sitting there wondering whether your pastor is going to stand up here and plagiarize our intern sermon. If you're concerned about that, let me assure you that's exactly what I'm going to do this evening. <laughs> sort of, not completely. Now, it's, it's not uh, plagiarism if you get permission, and the truth is Matthew had an excellent outline I'm using with his permission, pouring in some of my my own content here. But in all seriousness, we made our plans. The Lord had other ideas for us. And doesn't that remind us of the truth we see in the proverb, 1921? Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And I think we see that even in our text this evening, how, how God, he had his plan, right? God gave his promise, he revealed his plan, his plan to redeem and deliver his people. The enemies of God, Egypt, led by Pharaoh, they resisted the plan of God. There was resistance. 
And there was resentment, resistance, but also resentment. God's own people responded to the resistance with resentment, resistance, resentment, but God's plan would not be thwarted. To the contrary, it was reaffirmed. Notice the alliteration there. Good work, Matthew, right? By God's grace, as a marvelous testimony, yes, of his unfailing covenant love, his steadfast love, his great covenant faithfulness, his plan of deliverance was reaffirmed. That's the theme. That's the message before us this evening, that the Lord shows his covenant faithfulness as the message of deliverance is resisted by God's enemies, resented by God's people, and yet reaffirmed by God's grace. Wonderful message. Let us be built up and edified in the grace that is in Christ Jesus as we see it in our text this evening. Note first, then, our first point. We see that the promised deliverance was resisted by God's enemies. And right at the outset, I want to put before us a couple points of application. One is this. Beloved, let us not be surprised when the saving plans of God are met with resistance, and therefore let us not be surprised when we who are identified with the Lord and with his saving plans ourselves are confronted with great resistance. That is, when we suffer adversely at the hands of those who oppose, those who resist the Lord. Resistance. We see it in our text here. We're focusing on the first section, verses 1 through 14 of chapter 5. We see that Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they they deliver that message. Thus says the Lord. The message is really the very same message faithfully now delivered, the message that was given to Moses back in chapter 3. One other point of application. We saw this back in chapter 3, verse 18. But but here we see it again. What is the great reason, the great end for for, uh, for which the Lord is calling his people? The reason for the command, let my people go. Why should Pharaoh let them go? The great end is worship. Look at the first part of verse 1. Message is, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And then again, near the end of verse 3, let us go. Why? That we may sacrifice. Feast and sacrifice. This is language of worship. Dear Christian, why has the Lord delivered you? Why has your God redeemed you? Is it not to that great end that you would be those who would worship him? What is the great evil of Pharaoh as we see him rise up here as the great enemy of the Lord, as he rises up in resistance again God, against God's plan to deliver his people? What is, what is his great end? Well, really, he wants to rob the Lord of the worship due his name. We see in verse 2 one of the great expressions of dishonor and defiance in all of the Bible, isn't it? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. He does not know the Lord, and he rises up seeking to resist the Lord's plan, really resisting the Lord's plan to to receive that worship which he ought rightly to receive. In fact, he's really kind of by his by his actions, I think we can we could say in a sense he's trying to rob the Lord and steal that worship away from the Lord and direct it unto himself. Basically saying in so many words, Israel will not, will not go uh, to worship and serve the Lord. They will remain here and they will serve me. Israel will, 
worship and serve me, as it were. Blatant defiance of the Lord's command. Instead of freeing Israel, we see he does the polar opposite of that, doesn't he? He he pours more burden on them. He tries to slave them. Even worse, increases their suffering. And notice that he does so, interestingly, I I find, despite what I think we should see as something of a a humble plea, even compassionate and humble plea on the part of Moses and Aaron. This, This confrontation we see between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh is an interesting one. On the one hand, certainly we'd have to say this is no polite request at all. This is the Lord revealing himself as the true and living God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, and he comes with a command, thus says the Lord. This is a command which better be heeded or else, right? And yet as you look at verse 3 also, I think by God's design here, it comes as this respectful plea from Moses and Aaron. They, they reason with Pharaoh. In the ESV we see that, that word, please. It's the Hebrew, nah. It's a participle of entreaty. The, the old King James says, we, we pray thee. And note in that same verse that Moses and Aaron, I think on, on, on one level they sort of seem to express maybe some solidarity with Pharaoh. It says at the, the end of the verse, lest he the Lord fall upon us. Maybe like this isn't going to be good for any of us, Pharaoh. Suffering will come. Or maybe really think about what will happen to us if we don't give the Lord the worship that he deserves. Uh, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. It's like, they, like they're saying, if we fail to give the Lord that worship, do his name, it will not be good for you or for us. Pharaoh will endanger all of us. But despite this appeal, what do we see? We see Pharaoh's supreme, stubborn refusal, resistance indeed. Note at the end of verse 9 that Pharaoh effectively even calls God a liar, or at least calls God a liar by calling his servants liars. He commands that the people pay no regard to these lying words. And so Pharaoh defies the command of the Lord by coming down even harder on the Israelites, burdens them with extra work, same quota of bricks, but now you have to go searching and finding your own straw. So just imagine this. Here that the people, they were already burdened and crying out because of their great suffering, already oppressed and mistreated, and now it's poured on even more. The, the, the suffering, the demand, the slavery, it becomes even more unreasonable. Pharaoh demands the impossible. When Israel is unable to keep up with the demand, what happens? Look at verse 14. See, the foremen are even beaten and rebuked. Why have you not done all your task just as before? How awful. What terrible suffering. Indeed, you see the greatness, the greatness of the resistance. But did it justify the response which we see on the part of God's people. That's what we see secondly this evening. Sadly, not, not only is the promise of deliverance resisted by the enemies of God, but second, we see it is resented by God's people. And so we see down in verses 20 and 21 that, that Pharaoh's mistreatment of Israel only serves to embitter the people, embitters them against Moses and Aaron. What terrible words they speak in verse 21. The Lord look upon you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. 
We see in verses 22 and 23 that not only were the people that embittered, but then Moses himself becomes embittered by this. He's brought to a place where he's feeling the same resentment that, that they feel, and he even turns to the Lord, kind of complaining against, even, even accusing the Lord, asking, oh, Lord, why? why? Why have you done this? Why have you done this, done evil to this people? Even asking, why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you, you have not delivered your people at all. Amazing words, isn't it? It's like, Lord, you've not kept your word. You've promised deliverance. Have you broken your promise? What a sad moment. What was going on here? Well, how quickly the people, we would say, the people, I think even Moses himself, but they were betraying the profession of faith. Think back to what we saw at the end of uh, chapter 4 last time. Look at chapter 4 and verse 31 and recall that initial response on the part of the people to God's promise of deliverance. Remember what it said. It says, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their afflictions, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So here's the question. If they truly did believe that God had seen them, he had looked upon them while they were suffering, he had seen them in their affliction, he had visited them, why did they not continue believing that? Now as they suffered even Worse, their suffering increased, as painful as it was. Why did they, they not continue to believe? This is the God who sees. This is the Lord who certainly sees our suffering. Why, there were, why were they not able to see that, that the Lord had his hand in this? Why did they not continue trusting him even amidst their suffering? Good questions. Questions which ought to turn us towards ourselves and our own hearts. Why we fail to trust the Lord in those times when suffering comes in to our lives. Why not continue trusting him and even amidst their suffering, continue worshiping him while waiting upon his promised deliverance? Sadly, sadly, one thing I can say, I think we can say is they forgot who the enemy was. They forgot who the enemy was, didn't they? This event really should have been for them such a powerful reminder of who was the enemy, who was the source of evil. Just think about that for a moment. Note how different in this text, how different Pharaoh is from the Lord. The Lord is the one who had had heard their cries and who had responded to them, showing mercy and, and giving them a promise of deliverance, a God of mercy and a God of passion. What do we see in Pharaoh by contrast? What did Pharaoh do? How did he respond when they cried out to him for mercy in verse 15? Did he respond with mercy? No, we see, see, we see that he, he accused them of laziness. He sort of mocked their desire to go and worship the Lord. Verse 17, he says, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So he accuses them, he mocks them, and he shows no mercy. And yet somehow... Somehow it seems they, they forget that, that he is the enemy. Pharaoh is the enemy, and instead they turn against the Lord. They turn against the Lord by turning against the servants of the Lord. What a, what a terrible, terrible mistake. So much we can learn here, isn't there, by way of how we respond to, to trials, suffering that, that comes into our lives and into the life of the church. How do we respond? What a lesson they, the, the, that Israel would have done so well to learn, it would have 
served them so well later, that same generation, later in the wilderness, as we'll see that the, the, the sin they commit here really is a, a sin which they will, will see repeated throughout the history of this wicked generation. A lesson about trusting the Lord, trusting that, that God will fulfill his promises and he will do so in his timing and even by the means which he has ordained. You know, the text did not tell it, speaks nothing of, of how the Lord maybe how what he revealed to them in terms of wh- how things would unfold, what would be the details, the means by which God would fulfill his promise, his plan for them. They were never promised that the going would be completely easy. In fact, as they should have expected the opposite, right? Of course, of course the enemies of God's people are going to meet God's plans with resistance. And of course that resistance is going to express itself in, in, in the form of opposition of God's people. But how should they have responded to that opposition? They should have responded in faith. They should have continued believing. They should have held fast to the promises of God and thereby been willing to endure opposition and suffering, uh, looking to the Lord to fulfill those promises. They, they should have continued unified in their faith, unified with one another, upholding one another rather than turning against each other. What a lesson for us as, as we face trials, as the enemy attacks the church, how easy it is for us to become disunified and, and turn against each other, right? They should have trusted uh, the, the, the servant, the leaders whom the Lord had raised up as the instrument of deliverance. United with them, then they should have stood firm despite the resistance of the enemies. Instead, what do we see them do? They turn against each other. They turn against the Lord. Well, what a lesson about how, how crafty the evil one is. Brothers and sisters, let us, let us not be aware of his sinister schemes, the, the, the schemes of the evil one, which I think are illustrated so well by the actions of Pharaoh, whether or not he fully understood that, I suppose. On the one hand, this is, this is crazy, right? Well, what are you doing, Pharaoh? How, how could you rise up as an enemy of the Lord, opposing him by opposing his people? This is such a, a picture of how self-destructive, how irrational and foolish sin is. And on the other hand, I suppose it's kind of a brilliant strategy, isn't it? Divide and conquer. Pharaoh manages to to cause something of a a separation of the people from Moses and Aaron. Maybe that was part of the motive in pouring upon them, piling upon them even more work. In fact, we notice that it's kind of hard to unify when you're having to be scattered, right? Scattered off looking for stubble for straw, not just divide and conquer, but scatter and conquer. But it serves to disunify the people. Pharaoh manages to turn the people against Moses and to turn, really turn the people away from the Lord and away from the promises of the Lord. We see in 6.9 how the, the harshness of the slavery really served to break their spirits to the point where they were no longer listening to Moses. Again, it didn't have to be that way, did it? By God's grace, they they could have turned to the Lord. They could have turned to his servant Moses. They could have been clinging to his promises. They could have found grace to even endure the suffering and continue doing their work, clinging to God's word, clinging to his promises. But alas, what do we see? They were moved to bitter resentment. What What a sad moment this was. 
What a sad moment indeed. And yet, what do we see? This is another one of the great, but God. This is a moment where God will come and and, and the the light of his glory will shine amidst the darkness. God will work. Uh, How wonderfully the Lord would remain unwavering in his resolve to fulfill his covenant promises. This brings us to our last point, that even amidst the resistance of God's enemies, the resentment of his own people, the promised deliverance was nonetheless reaffirmed, reaffirmation, reaffirmed by God's grace. Here we're focusing particularly on that last section, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. As we know, of course, the resistance of Pharaoh, this was part of the Lord's plan. What will God say later? He'll say, this very, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And that's what the Lord promises to Moses, really, even in our text, chapter 6, verse 1. He says, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Wonderful words. How marvelously those words will be fulfilled. A time will come where, where Pharaoh will not, uh, not simply reluctantly let them go. It's like he'll be forcefully saying, get out of my land, really? While at the same time kind of begging from them. That's what we'll see in chapter 1 when he will say in verses 31 and 32, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. And what else will he say? Bless me. Bless me also. And so Pharaoh will be humbled. God will reveal his power. He'll reveal his power. And he will reveal his name. Notice what we see in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 6. This is another marvelous, a great statement, albeit a bit perplexing of one. Our our brother Richard Reisner was wrestling with this text recently and offered some helpful thoughts as we were thinking about it. Well, what's the issue here? Well, note what it says in verse 2. It says that God spoke to Moses and Aaron and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, now what's strange about this is it gives the impression that the name of the Lord was never revealed all throughout the book of Genesis to any of the patriarchs. We know that's not the case. So the name of the Lord appears throughout the book of Genesis. In fact, I agree with Richard, who pointed out that there were, in fact, numerous and extremely significant ways in which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob each knew the Lord by name. And so what's going on here? Well, I believe the point being made here is that that name Yahweh, the Lord, by God's design, it would be so connected to the Exodus Deliverance, So connected to Israel's deliverance out of Egypt that it could be said that the name was not really known, meaning not fully known until then. As Dr. Morales puts it, quote, the significance of the name awaited the revelation that is the Exodus. Yahweh's name then may only be known through the mighty acts and fatherly compassion that comprise Israel's deliverance out of Egypt. The Exodus unveils the being and attributes of God as no other event thus far. To experience the Exodus is to learn about Yahweh himself. 
If you think about those words and just think about the kind of encouragement this would have been, should have been to Israel as they were suffering, suffering under the oppression of Pharaoh. Here God was saying, your suffering will be an occasion by which I will reveal myself to you in ways that I've never revealed myself henceforth. You'll understand what it means that I am the Lord. You will know my name like none before you ever have, even more fully than did Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or any saint who ever lived. You will come to know my name. You will come to know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. As, as our brother Matthew Ezel noted, how wonderful to think about how, how Pharaoh's I do not know the Lord would become the occasion by which he would bring his people to know the Lord, to know him like he'd never been known before, to know him ever more deeply. And that truth that God's name would be so tied to the Exodus deliverance is so powerfully shown in this section in chapter 6. Note that in verse 4, the Lord reminds them of the covenant promise. In verse 5, he He reminds them again, I have heard your groaning. I am fully aware of your suffering. But look what it says in verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, note this, here's the name, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and notice the, the marvelous, the beautiful expression of that, uh, the, the promise that's at the heart of the covenant there in verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and here's the name again, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Again, in verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. And once more, what do we see? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. We rightly say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we bless the Lord for that wonderful name, particularly as we think about the exodus, the deliverance of the people of Israel out of Egypt. And so that deliverance was reaffirmed, and this reaffirmation was reaffirmation that was all of the grace of God indeed. It was in no way in response to the faithfulness of the people of Israel, not even in response to the faithfulness of Moses himself. In fact, we see in verse 9 that it comes even as the people really continue in their bitter resentment. At this point, they're so broken in spirit that they can't believe a word Moses speaks at this point. We see in verse 12 the level of Moses' own discouragement, his own lack of faith. He's seeing that the people haven't listened to me. Pharaoh won't listen to me. He even goes on to say, I am a man of uncircumcised lips. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Uncircumcised lips. How striking to to, to think... uh, Striking by way of a testimony of the amazing grace of God to think that this one, he calls himself the man of uncircumcised lips, he's the one who will go on to be the the Deuteronomy chapter 18, the prototypical prophet. It's after his pattern that, that God will establish for Israel the office of the prophet, and ultimately it will culminate in him who is the final prophet, the great prophet, Jesus Christ himself, that prophet like Moses that prophet infinitely greater than Moses. How marvelous. But here it's like they're all finished. They're all finished. We don't believe you. 
Moses himself, I've got uncircumcised lips. What's the point? They were finished, but the Lord was never finished. And so it ends with with God kind of uh, recommissioning Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 13. He speaks to Moses and Aaron, and he gives them a charge about the people of Israel and about the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people out of the land of Egypt. So resistance, resentment, and yet right there in the middle of it all was right in the middle of all of the sinful unbelief, the hopeless despair, what do we see? This glorious, glorious reaffirmation. What marvelous grace. Just think about that. How is it possible, brothers and sisters? How is it possible for us to press on amidst the, the trials that come into our lives, the bitter resentment we, we can sometimes feel in our own hearts? We can identify with the people here because we experience the same kind of sinful unbelief, the same sinful doubts ourselves. Let this be a great, glorious call, a reminder of the call upon us to persevere, to press on, even when, when, when the trials of life become so great, never lose heart. Look to the Lord and press on. How is it possible that we can do this? Well, we know the answer. Because we belong to him. We belong to that one who amidst the worst evil, the greatest resistance, the one who had the, the, the most reason to turn to become bitter in soul and yet was completely faithful. This is a text that magnifies the, the, the covenant faithfulness of God as it would be shown forth in the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus He's the answer. How could it be? Jesus is his name, not the great name, the most blessed name, and even greater fullness of of the revelation of God's covenant fullness, the name of Jesus. This is a text that calls us to look to Christ, the faithful servant through whom the Lord would indeed fulfill all of his covenant promises and bring forth that great deliverance. How wonderfully these events show us our desperate need of him. Oh, how Israel reveals in this text how desperately they needed a savior. Oh, how Moses himself showed himself to need a savior, a redeemer, the only redeemer of God's elect, the Lord Jesus Christ, that one who would come and who would be faithful. His his soul would never be embittered against his God, the one who never, ever stopped believing, the one who endured even amidst the worst suffering, the one who suffered righteously. Oh, how Moses needed a Savior. Oh, how we need a Savior. Oh, how we need, we need one who's, by whose grace we can press on in faith and never, never lose heart but remain faithful. Think about how Jesus, even when his own disciples would all forsake him and all fall away on account of him, he remained faithful. Even when his people, the covenant people, would would deliver him up to be crucified, he remained faithful. And he would do it all for them. He would do it all for us. He would go to the cross, praise God, and he would lay lay down his life, a sin-atoning sacrifice, and God would raise him from the dead. Dear Christian, this evening, do you see your need of Christ? Will you not again look to him, trust him, surrender your life to him, find grace from him to see in this text that your life is in him and thereby find grace this evening to learn from all of Israel's and, and Moses' Moses's mistakes uh, in their unfaithfulness. Find grace from him to walk in greater faithfulness 
and to do so all because of him. In your union with him, Christ Jesus, he is, he, is our, he is our exodus deliverance. There's so much we could say in this regard. But I want us to close by thinking about how resistance, which sometimes moves God's people to resentment, should not do so in the lives of those who belong to Christ. Instead, it should move us to worship. Let's go back to that, the way our text begins, right? Chapter 5, verses 1 and 3. Feasting, sacrifice, Worship. We might, might think of the, uh, the, the, the uh, Passover meal, which was about to be instituted or will be not, not too long after. But, but worship. You know, worship is the polar opposite of resistance and resentment, isn't it? Worship. Pharaoh should have responded to the revelation of God's deliverance by worship. Israel, they should not have resented. Instead, they should have continued in worship. Worship, is that not the supreme blessing to which God has called us? Worship, to draw near to God, to enjoy fellowship with God uh, in sacrifice. Worship, it's not, not a kind of unpleasant burden the way slavery is. Slavery to sin, that, that, that's the great burden. That's the thing that, that prevents us from entering into worship and enjoying that communion with God, which is most satisfying. Worship. That's the, the blessed exercise by which we experience true freedom, worship. That, 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 there's where we do the thing that God created us to do. And so God had promised to bring Israel to the place where they would worship. They would come into his presence. They would come into his presence through sacrifice with which he would be pleased. And they would come into his presence feasting. And in t- anticipation of that, they should, have, they should have entered into that worship even in advance by trusting, by obeying, by walking in faithfulness. And it's that to which the Lord calls us, worship. Is that not what motivated Christ to carry out and complete the great work given him by the Father? Was it not for his great zeal, for that worship that God desires, feasting, sacrifice, worship, Even as he was going to the cross, he never stopped worshiping. I think that's reflected so well, that his zeal for worship, even in the the words by which he instituted that supper we celebrated this morning, that new covenant Passover meal. He said to the disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus worshiped. He was worshiping even, even as he was uh, perfecting obedience all the way to the cross. And at the cross was the supreme act of worship where he offered even his body up as a living sacrifice. And it was holy and it was acceptable. Our Lord was zealous for worship. He was worship, uh, zealous for worship even in its, in its old covenant form. How much more is he zealous for that worship? in its new covenant form. And Christ is the one who has brought us and is bringing us to the place where we enter into the presence of our God through the blood of him who has offered that perfect sacrifice and we feast and we glorify and we enjoy God now and forever. What should be our response to what we learned this evening? Should it not be worship? Worship by the grace of God in our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, learning of Israel's mistakes, learning of Moses' mistakes, 
And by the grace of Christ, walking in covenant faithfulness, let us be a people who worship our God. Let us offer to him that worship, to use the words of Hebrews chapter 12. And I'll close with these words. Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray together. We do worship you, O Lord, God of Israel, our great Redeemer in Jesus Christ. We worship you and we bless your name forever. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to do so more and more. Come to us this evening, we pray. Strengthen our faith. Cause your word to dwell in us by the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, would you grant that in every way we might die unto sin and we might live unto righteousness, even being conformed unto the image of him who is our Savior and our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen.